Welcome to Connections. I'm Colleen Hood. Imagine being a child on a boat with hundreds of people headed to a new country. That happened to today's guest. His name is Vin Hewen. He is a former refugee and now the principal of the same high school that he attended when he was a youth. Today, he'll share his journey of how he managed to get where he is today and how he's using his own experience to encourage and help others in the same situation. That's today on Connections. Today we're joined by Vin Hewen. He is a former refugee and he's now the principal of a high school in Manitoba. And it's the same high school he attended when he was a youth. We're starting off at the beginning of your life. Okay. Um, when you were born, where you were born and, and what life was like um, before coming to Canada. All right. So I was born in the late 60s, uh, in uh, 1969, in uh, a city called Bienghua, uh, in the province of Dong Nai, in uh, what is known at that time, southern Vietnam. And so I was born during a time when uh, and Vietnam was uh, struggling and suffering from the, uh, the, the conflict and the war. So from the western side, it was known as the Vietnam War, but, you know, from the other side, yeah, which is, the, is known as the American War. So anyway, it was really a, 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 a conflict that was deeply troubling for the, um, the, the, the nation, as, uh, you know, it was in some way uh, a conflict between siblings, between sisters, again, sisters and brothers and brothers, depending upon which side uh, you've chosen or have chosen you. So it was a deeply troubling time uh, for the nation, and yet uh, I grew up in a home that was very much of an extended family. Uh, my mom and dad and my siblings live with my uh, maternal grandparents and also my uncle and auntie. So... I was surrounded by lots of loves and a lot of care, and so uh, it, it's important to understand that, you know, uh, uh, I'm always appreciative of the fact that uh, when we have loving homes, that not just the nuclear family, but the extended family come together to, um, to care for the little ones, uh, one is truly uh, blessed, and we should be thankful for that. So that was the first, well, the first six years of my life, and then um, in 1975, that was when the southern Vietnam uh, uh, capitulated and surrendered, and the north uh, unified the country. And so it was a time of huge disruption, uh, disruptions to, uh, um, to everything because uh, uh, you had put it, well, one side was defeated and the other side was a victor, and my family were uh, part of the, um, uh, the southern side. And many of my um, uncles, and including my dad, had served with the, um, the Army Republic of Vietnam in the south of Vietnam. And so um, they ended up, uh, my uncle and my dad, were in a re-education camp. And so that was, uh, it was a pivotal time for me, and it was a, a marked time for me because I was without my father for a good uh, year plus uh, because he was uh, in prison in a re-education camp. As a young person, what was it like to to deal with that and and to deal with what was going on around you? Because as you said, you're you're like six, seven, however yeah. many years old at this yeah. point. Yeah, I I uh, by nature I'm very much an introvert, and um, I spend a lot of time looking and listening, and then just remembering, and it it, it becomes part of who I am. And so it was a deeply troubling time because I, I there was so much chaos that was happening around. And I still remember. You know, my family driving back from Saigon to Bienguan way after the mass of the uh, April 30th, 75 surrender. And you can just see, like, you know, um, the road was ridden, strewn with abandoned weaponries and, um, and, and 
and, and clothing that the soldier had cast aside, abandoning tanks and trucks and all that. So it, it was uh, it was strangely, um, how can I describe it? There was a fascination with it as a young child, but there was also a sadness that come with it, recognizing that life will never be the same again. And so I think, you know, uh, at that time, I guess kind of without a father being around and my mom was left to herself, uh, thank goodness she had her uh, family there to support her. And, you know, uh, with the whole disruption in the economy as well, you know, all the many, the, much of the wealth that we have put together were basically evaporated. That the, you know, the money no longer was any worth. And so there was also that there were many stressors that were in there. But what it came down to was that I discovered that no, not I discovered, but I felt uh, deeply that I missed my father. The absence of one father was very keen. Uh, but thankfully, he was a, he was eventually released, and I still remember that uh, day, the afternoon, and uh, you know he. I was looking up from I was sitting disconsolately at the side of um, outside of the alleyway that leads to our house, and basically I looked up and I see my father, and then I ran up to him with joy and just you know gave him a. Uh, uh, I didn't, and we don't hug, but I, I grabbed the bag that he had, and then I took the bag and ran ahead and just uh, very loudly declared to the whole neighborhood, my father's home, dad is home. So uh, that was very thankful that he came back in that way. How did you eventually manage to make it to Canada? Uh, so when my dad came back uh, from uh, the, the time, and he basically poured himself into the work of uh, building back capacity and, uh, and and wealth for the family. So the, pretty well for the next three years, uh, a lot of it was put into uh, uh, basically uh, regaining as much as we can what we had lost. And so around 78, uh, 1978 there, um, there was a, um, 78, 79, uh, there was a border war conflict between Vietnam and China, and um, as ethnic Chinese living in Vietnam, we're Vietnamese citizens, but our ethnicity is Chinese. Um, the government at that time said, yeah, maybe, no, you guys need to go. And so my dad and mom were able to uh, work really hard to look into securing um, uh, passages for us uh, to leave uh, Vietnam at that time. And so many of the families uh, at that time, including mine, pretty well spent our entire, most of our life saving uh, to secure those passages in order to uh, get on to those um, the the boat, and then uh, pretty pretty well uh, left uh, Vietnam to go into high sea, and um, the place of destinations for us happened to be Malaysia. Other went to Thailand. Some people went to Indonesia and Philippines, and so uh, it was a harrowing journey because uh, a number of people, a uh, good number of people, we don't know exact numbers, but many didn't make it. They their lives were lost on the high sea, and so we're very thankful. That our family made it to uh, safely into uh, Malaysia uh, without, uh, you know, uh, the um, uh, there was the real fear that you could be intercepted by pirates as well, or your engine would break down. But that didn't happen to us. Five days and four nights later, after leaving Vietnam in April of 1979, we eventually kind of landed in Malaysia. And once we're in Malaysia, we were um, considered to be stateless and refugees. And uh, eventually we were moved through a series of camp, and then uh, uh, we avoided narrowly being towed back to sea because that was what happened to a number of, of, of people. You know, if they weren't able to be registered in time with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, 
but eventually we basically were uh, moved into an official camp that was sponsored and uh, supervised by the UNHCR. And it was there that um, we went through a set of interviews necessarily. And the one that we went to was actually with the Canadian, uh, uh, the Canadian Foreign Service officer, and we were eventually accepted by Canada. I still remember uh, there was a, a, um, a practice where the um, over the intercom that covers the entire island, people with um, the announcer will announce the name of the people and the families who've been accepted by certain country. And I still remember my dad, when he heard all our names pronounced, he jumped with joy and ran around and said, yeah, we're going to Canada, we're going to Canada. And uh, we're very thankful that, that the, the, the joyous news was we greeted with much joy uh, in our family. Now, you were only 10 years old when you were on this boat. What was that experience like? So, basically, the boat... Uh, see, what happened is that the government uh, at that time allowed for official uh, passage to be purchased so that you can leave. So you can have one or two choices. If you can do that, you go officially. And then if you... There are a number of people who say, I don't necessarily have enough money but I have a boat, so they would go illegally, which is they escaped. Uh, we went the official passage, and was, the window was open. was only for a short period of time. Uh, but because it was, uh, you know, it was a money-making way for the government, so the boats were pretty well cram-packed. Uh, we had a total of 202 people in an 18-meter by 2.5 meters. Wow. And so everybody was jam-packed, literally uh, jam-packed together. Uh, the young men and young women were in the hole, uh, in the uh, deep in the hole where, you know, what the fish would have been kept. Uh, that area was all young men and women, and the, uh, the upstream part of the boat would be for the older people and the women and the children. And so it was pretty uh, jam-packed with people. Uh, you know, we uh, basically had basic, um, some water and some noodles to sustain us, and uh, Many of us have never been into high sea before. This was our first exposure to it. And so um, we're very thankful that we had good weather. We didn't have any storms. We didn't have any pirate to intercept us. And uh, many of us spent a lot of time being sick for the first number of days. And pretty well, you just uh, are in the kind of a sense of, yeah, this is where I am right now. And, you know, I'm just packed in with people. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll reach shore somehow. And so... Um, as a young child, I, in some way, kind of observed this with, uh, with a sense of detachment in terms of, like, yeah, this is just the experience right now. Uh, but uh, looking back, I would say that, you know, that uh, um, we, we've, looking back, I could sense that we were much protected and supported during that journey. And obviously now, even though that was years ago, it had an impact on your life because you still remember all of this clearly. Yes. It, it's, uh, it, like I said, uh, it basically imprints yourself on your memories and your heart and your spirit and your soul, right? And it is one of those, well, as human beings, when there's epical or destiny-defining destiny moments that happen to us, it becomes a part of who we are, and it guides and it influences us uh, in both the sunshine and the shadow in terms of how we live our lives. I continue to be thankful for that, thankful for what I have because of that experience, knowing that uh, life is precious, and, uh, you know, sometimes wondering and appreciating that how much that I, I'm here, that I, I'm living, and that I may be able to enjoy a, 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 a good and a meaningful life that I've been given. 
uh, while others, you know, uh, did not have that opportunity. Many of them lost their lives in the high sea. Tell us what the experience was like once you all arrived and once your family arrived in Canada. Yeah. So at that time, the government was really, uh, it was a, one of the biggest uh, uh, wave of, uh, of newcomers to arrive in Canada within a short period of time. Altogether, in that time of 1979, 80, there were close to 60,000 uh, Vietnamese uh, um, people who arrived here on the sponsor in Canada. And so the government um, put up for some tremendous effort and put in policy and process in place to uh, get the people here. And so they use um, the, um, the military base. And we went to the one in Montreal. And so uh, we landed and uh, uh, after a very long trip from uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, in Montreal. And I still remember looking out and just saying, yeah, this is definitely not Asia anymore because mm-hmm. I observed the soldiers who were standing outside the plane and the ground crew. They looked like they were breathing smoke. And uh, it was in November, and later I discovered that that's just a function of a colder climate. <laughs> and so uh, it wasn't, there was no snow yet in Montreal, and I still remember the beautiful drive, uh, peaceful drive through the countryside in Quebec in order to get to the, uh, the, the um, processing camp where we were basically housed and processed uh, and basically informed as to uh, where we would be going. And so my family discovered that... Uh, uh, the six of us, plus our two uncles, uh, was uh, sponsored by a um, coalition of uh, houses of worship in um, Boto, Manitoba. And so we, shortly, within the three to four days there, we were then uh, flown to Winnipeg. And so here's uh, the part that just uh, I still think to this day. We Actually, when we arrived later that night, we were basically housed in the Balmoral Hotel. Oh. Yeah, so... It was most interesting because uh, the Balmore Hotel was very close to the Greyhound bus station because the next day we would uh, be able to be bussed out of there. So it was interesting because, uh, you know, I still remember um, looking out the window of the Balmore Hotel north of uh, Salter and Isabel and just at that time just wondering, um, you know, my place in this new land. And as I look back to that time, I continue to look back at that time. In some way, I have a sense that uh, there was a glimmer of my purpose and my calling. Is that you know, the idea of who am I? Do I matter? Do I have a voice? Do I know how to sound my voice? And what is my role and place here in this new land? So all that feeling, that sense, uh, was the impression that as I think back to that moment at the window of the Balmoral Hotel, it came back to me. And so, um, so the next morning, we, we had our, our first taste of what I discovered later to be bacon and eggs with, with ketchup on the side. I thought ketchup with chili, but I said, hey, chili is not very hot here. <laughs> <laughs> and then we were just uh, driven to uh, the Greyhound bus because uh, it was a short distance away. And then from the Greyhound bus, we traveled through the countryside. And it must have been the stretch between Winnipeg and uh, Brandon there. I still remember my dad looking out, and he said uh, something along of the, uh, the paraphrase, and he said, um, uh, there's so few houses, and there's so many, the trees are without leaves. Uh, why does Canada seem like it's so sad? He, he, he wasn't thinking of the cold, because the snow was there. Now. 
And then he said something that uh, continues to uh, to be in my heart to this day. And I say, in Vietnamese, I mean more to laterally, which means in the fall time, the leaves will fall. And so, you know, I think back to that time, what he was really meaning is that, and this is the poetic side of our Chinese side coming through, mm-hmm. is that, you know, uh, the life that we had is now gone. We're about to begin a new life. And so... Uh, we're very thankful for that new life when we got to Brandon, and then we were met with, uh, you know, one of our sponsors uh, who uh, came up in a big white van and eventually drove us to our home that was all set up for us in Burdo, Manitoba. And Vin has so much more to share with us about his story and how he's using his own experience as a refugee to help others that are going through the same thing. Join us tomorrow for part two of our conversation.